Friends, Thriving on the Possibility is back. I first started recording my first two episodes during Explorers Festival of June 2019 at National Geographic headquarters in DC. But the conversation I'll receive today was recorded in June of 2020 with National Geographic Explorer and Kenyan environmentalist Wangeshi Kiyango. Now, the initial audio for her introduction had a little feedback, so I re-recorded it, but she quickly takes on for the rest of her story. Please enjoy. How can I use this aggressiveness in, in a positive way, be the voice of these communities? I'm Peg Kiner, and this is Thriving on the Possibility. In this season, we'll explore episodes of female explorers explaining the stories of resilience. Shame researcher Brene Brown says that there are few words that people tell themselves to overcome obstacles. That they say, this is the story I'm telling myself, and that through that narrative, they can overcome struggles and achieve greatness. I'm on the hunt for that story. So here at National Geographic, I found female explorers to come tell me their stories of resilience, of how they've navigated obstacles, overcome struggles, and all those small steps that they take each day to keep going. Wangeshi Kiango is an environmentalist based out of Kenya, working with communities and students in matters related to environmental conservation. Broadly, her work encompasses tree planting, mentorship activities, and research. Over the last few years, her focus has been around Lake Turkana and working with the community-based organization she founded called Save Lake Turkana Movement. Lake Turkana is the world's largest desert lake. Marginalized communities rely on Lake Turkana, and she is working to protect their livelihoods, which are in danger due to ongoing developments around the lake. So the livelihoods of the communities around there are in danger. So that's basically what we are working around, trying to figure out alternative livelihood sources for the communities, as well as understanding how we can help the communities protect the lake as well. Yeah. That is so much. And it's so complex, whether it's saving the lake, finding new opportunities, but where does this all start for you? When in your life did you start getting interested in environmental activism and conservation? So for me, I, I, I figured out for most people, it starts with a sad story like my community, we face these kind of issues, but it's sort of the opposite for me because I've grown up around central Kenya, which is green and most of the time it's raining, it's fertile. So I've not experienced like harsh environmental conditions. But a couple of years ago when I was doing my university internship, I got an opportunity to, I was assigned around Lake Tukano, which is like the total opposite of where I've grown up. It's a semi-arid area. Most of the time they experience drought. But then I experienced how connected, culturally connected, they are with this lake, Lake Turkana. So having to stay there uh, for a few weeks with these people and experience how tied they are to the lake, 
basically gave me the urge to help them protect this lake, as well as in, engage myself with kids and communities and even adults as well, university students, to try and understand how we can conserve and protect the environment, not only now the lake, but also the environment at large, because I came to understand that not everyone had the privilege of growing up in green spaces like I did, uh, places where they don't experience drought and um, maybe even lack food because of the practices they do or the, the, the threats they pose to the environment. So basically this gave me the push to try and engage and involve everyone so that at least every person can have something to celebrate in nature, just like I did growing up. That's such a powerful story. And I can imagine you as a young person are surrounded by lush green and being kind of shocked by what you saw. But I love the phrase that you used when you said culturally connected, that the people were culturally connected to the lake and how that's it's not something we always see in other parts of the world. And I'm interested in how you engage mm-hmm. people through their culture about caring for it, because changing those mindsets uh, and finding opportunities can be so challenging. Yeah, it's actually so, so difficult, especially working with communities around northern Kenya because they are very, very protective with their resources and um, their culture and basically their surrounding. So it's been challenging trying to tell them, like, you can't, for example, they have their own ways of fishing. They have their own limits, generally what they've been doing. So trying to tell them, no, you can't um, do this fishing in this kind of way at this time. You can't catch these uh, sizes of fish at this time. And in fact, the most difficult thing is that I am not from that particular community. So it's been quite a challenge trying to change their mindsets because for them, it's like this person coming from a, another community trying to tell us what to do in our community that cannot work. So basically what I've been trying to do is engage. I don't do it as my project. I do it as a community project. So I work in the side, working with communities who know the culture more. So for me, it's like I am an advisor to them. So they get the instructions from a community member. And I work as just like a supervisor or an advisor because probably they may think or they may they may see for me it's maybe taking advantage or just coming to um, advise them on what they should change and they've been used to other forms of life. And it's, um, I mean, if you see the culture, how rich their culture is, for example, I can't tell them, uh, there's this, the smallest community around this place. I mean, even in Kenya, it's called the Elmolo community. And the remnants are like, I think, less than 100 people remaining. And totally, like 90% of their livelihoods and their life actually depend on this lake. So going there and telling them, no, you can't um, probably kill crocodiles. For example, they kill crocodiles during some cultural practices. So you can't go tell them, no, you can't continue killing crocodiles because of this and this. It's very, very hard for me. So basically what I've been trying to do is incorporate the communities, trying to enlighten some few members who will understand because not everyone understands. So basically work and train some few members, tell them 
um, for example, you can't catch fish at this particular time because um, already we are experiencing a reduction in fish levels. And this is the reason. Show them facts, show them science. And the few who understand help me work with um, other community members just to see how much we can do in terms of saving the lake and saving their livelihoods as well. So I can say it's not, it's actually quite difficult because these communities have experienced people taking advantage of them, taking advantage of the fact that they are marginalized communities and they feel like their culture is in danger. So for them, they think everything is okay. But uh, if you look at the data and the changes affecting this lake, you're able to know that they are really in danger and try to figure out ways in which we can help them. So it's not easy for me. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds incredibly challenging. And how do you build trust with those leaders? I think that's a very good question and a very common question. So what we do is, so the Save Lake Tukana movement first, just to give a small brief history, was formed by my then supervisor and myself. And my supervisor as well is not from that community. So the reason why we formed this was because we realized once we left the organization we were working with, nobody would be working with the communities anymore. Nobody would be helping them realize um, maybe alternative sources of livelihood. So we did, we formed it to sort of bring in a continuation of the work we were doing even after we left the organization we were working with then. So I think the most powerful strategy or the most uh, helpful thing up to now uh, in terms of building trust is most of the past we we were located in Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya, but this lake is in Turkana, that is up north. So what we did is we brought in most of the members are from uh, around this lake, and most of the people who advise because actually we mostly depend somehow depend on indigenous knowledge because they know more about the surroundings than we do. Probably we bring in maybe the science and all that, but they know more through indigenous knowledge and interacting with this ecosystem more than we have. So how we bring in the leaders is using the local members themselves. So the leaders, um, the good thing is the people who lead the organizations, for example, the Kenya Marine and Fisheries Authority in Turkana is led by a person from around the community. So this person understands when you explain, maybe for example, scientifically, um, what cl how climate change is affecting this lake, how the development uh, in Ethiopia are affecting the lake, how overfishing, for example, as well is affecting the lake. So when you explain this to them, uh, they called, so how we did it, they called for sort of a baraza. A baraza is a small meeting with the community members. So they called for a small baraza with um, influential people in the community. And we explained it to them and told them um, our aims, our goals, and how they would be affected, how their livelihoods are in danger, and explain them, explained it to them in the most basic ways and most basic um, terms. And once they were able to understand this, as I mentioned, the most, some of the most influential people, they're able to go out to the community and 
as well explain to other members so that they're able to understand what our aims are. Also, another thing is, for example, when we are doing data collection, uh, administering questionnaires and all that, we use local people as well. So we explain everything to them, tell them this is what is happening. As you collect data, explain each question and tell them how this question uh, impacts or is going to help in what we are doing. So basically just engaging them and explaining each and every, and in terms of even decision-making, whether we decide which part to work and why we have to explain it to them first and get their approval. So and trust, our trust will build it by generally engaging them in every single thing so that they don't think maybe we are working behind their backs or, you know, some even think probably these people get um, grants and donor funding and all that just to come and take advantage of us as marginalized communities and the hardship we are facing. Because I remember when we were doing data collection the first time and someone, I did it the first time we did it ourselves and that's when we realized, no, we need to get community members to do this. So we were administering questionnaires and I remember one person, a very old man said, no, I'm not answering any question unless you give me money. So we wondered, why would we pay you to get like some information from me? And he said, that is what you people are used to doing. You come, uh, take information from us. You don't bring feedback of like your findings or whatever you're collecting. So basically, him for him, he saw uh, people were used to getting, you know, give me answers and I give you some little amount of money and you won't even know what I do with the data or the information. We realized the only way we could involve the community is once we get findings, however little they are, we come, give them and share the, with them what we found out in the most basic way. So one of our successful um sharing has been the save uh, the water to dust documentary which has been aired on national television so we featured members of the local community just airing their views on what uh, the developments that are affecting the lake what their views are what they see the future of the lake as and maybe how they'll be impacted and we went back after produ producing the documentary we went back to Kana and aired this uh, documentary and showed it to them in different villages so that they're able to see the product of uh, their input towards our project. So basically, I'd say for us, what we are working with in terms of building trust is engaging them in everything and in every decision that we are making in regard to this community. Yeah. That's so interesting to hear all the different ways that you're going about building. So I heard that you're being transparent with the data you're collecting, you're investing in people to show them that it's not what we sometimes call parachute science, where we come in, gather knowledge, and then leave and then don't come back. But you're also making sure that it's a continuous feedback cycle. 
of collecting information, sharing it back mm-hmm. and making sure that people know that this is this is not just a single time acquisition of information, that it's not transactional, mm-hmm. that this is in fact, they are part mm-hmm. of this community and you are devoted to making sure that there are livelihoods. And I think what I'm hearing is that you, you and your team spend a lot of time making sure that people know that they are cared for and that this is a mutual trust about the land and respect of their knowledge. Yeah. It sounds like, and I know in a lot of your work, you not only focus on the adults in the community, but you're also focused on young people in community, right? Yeah. So um, basically what we do with the kids is nurture them at a broad, environmentally in a broad level, not focusing only on the lake. So what we do around this region, and we've recently extended to Marsabit, is do environmental, we call it tree planting and uh, mentorship activities. So what we do is we do tree, tree planting with these kids and also mentor them in matters related to uh, the environment because currently the curriculum, the education curriculum they're working with doesn't involve environmental-based um, um into details, environmental issues in details. So you basically educate them on climate change, importance of, for example, basically planting trees. And each kid we plant a tree with is given a tree as a responsibility. So they grow with this tree. And once they are done with, for example, their primary education, they leave it to another kid. They pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. So basically, uh, in terms of, Mentorship, we also do establish environmental clubs where they do not exist. In schools, they do not exist. And this is not only around Kurkana and Marsabit, but also around the central area where I live and uh, where I grew up. We establish environmental clubs where kids um, have exchanges, do tree plantings as well, even on their own when we are not there, do environmental competitions. So basically, we are doing. Uh, with kids, we are not engaging them in only the lake, but also mentoring them and um, ca- doing capacity building of environmental issues at a broader level so that they are able to engage others as well and have more knowledge on environmental-related issues because um, they are the future leaders of tomorrow, of tomorrow in terms of decision-making in matters environment. So trying to nurture their mindsets at a young age is what we are trying to do at the moment as well. So this is not only with Save Lake, in terms of working with kids, is not only with Save Lake Kana movement, but with other youth-led groups working uh, as a partnership to nurture these young kids. Yeah. I love the phrase capacity building and the analogy of that they, when they are done with primary school, someone else has to take responsibility over their tree. I think that's such a beautiful Mm -hmm. ritual and idea Mm -hmm. that you would instill in kids that there is a movement of responsibility that is shared amongst people, Uh, that it's Mm -hmm. not just one person or one group, that it's this collective generational responsibility for the land. I think working with kids, I find it easier than working with adults. Because, you know, for kids, it's like you tell them this. Yes, they'll have some questions and it's very easy to explain it to them and they'll take it in. But for adults, they're like, I mean, we've 
come this far without uh, you telling us to like reduce the amount of fish we are catching or change our culture, change our practice to this. Because they, as I mentioned, they have their own practices based on indigenous knowledge. So trying to tell them maybe climate change is affecting this in this way. So we have to change or adjust in this kind of way. We've received like so much, um, what would I call it? Changing is hard for yeah, people of any yeah. age level, but I also agree that working with kids is, is way more fun and they are much more adept and open to knowledge, but they haven't lived through mm-hmm. the different experiences that adults have. And you talked a little bit about the mistrust and, and they, you know, many students may not have experienced that. They may have heard about it, mm-hmm. but not experienced it. Yeah. So it does take a while and I'm glad you're, building a foundation right away with kids mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, taking care of the land and the collective responsibility mm-hmm. of respecting indigenous knowledge, but also conservation of space mm-hmm. is something that's passed down now th- through the younger generations. Cause you're right. They are going to be the ones that will take over. So I see you not only creating a sustainable, transparent conversation with adults, but making sure that when the project does move to a different part, that there are kids and another next generation to take over when mm-hmm. you are gone or when the next generation moves on, that they're still going to be instilled with those values that you have uh, strived to create and cultivate through your groups like Ecophilia. Is that right? I yeah. know that's one <laughs> environmental community-based group you work with, right? Yeah. So ecophilia, yeah. So ecophilia basically is a kana. So we realized we can't like work with Sevle to kana in maybe a place called Kisumu or Nairobi or wherever because they'd wonder like to to kana. I mean, this is um locationally biased. So ecophilia, what it does, works more with kids in matters to environmental, not only with kids, but works at a broader perspective of the environment, not only focusing on, for example, Lake Tana, but focusing on other issues like lakes that are being polluted, rivers that are being polluted, uh, forest deforestation that is going on. So mostly does sort of environmental activism. Yeah. So it's more of an umbrella of environmental conservation, whereas Save Lake Dracana is, a, exactly. is a specific about that one space. Yes. So, you know, this whole podcast is us kind of listening and finding these stories of resilience. And you've already shared with us a lot of the strategies that you've used to overcome obstacles in your work. But is there any story you would like to share that highlights resilience, whether it's in yourself or people or the environment? Um, so for me, I think one story I'd like there is when I was starting, basically, I'd call it the conservation journey. Um, there are so many negatives around, like, you know, Based on, you remember, I am sure you know about Wangari Mathai, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. And she faced so many challenges, especially being a woman and being in the environmental field, especially in Kenya, it's very challenging. Because you find that most of the time you're probably working or advocating against maybe government projects. And I remember... One day, words that I remember up to date 
um, a friend of mine, and I'm sure probably she'll listen to this because she's still my friend. She said, you know, um, this line, I mean, I got to a point like I got my works got featured in newspapers and my friend told me, you know, this line you're taking, um, it's making you sort of look like an aggressive woman and it will be hard for you to probably even find a husband. And up to date, I, I still remember her words because I wondered like if our minds are clogged or focused on what people think about our work or what limits they put to our work. And maybe probably, you know, in my community or in the society I, I live in, getting married or getting children is something it's considered as progress, quote unquote. And I normally think to myself, if I focused on like what she said and probably toned down so that maybe potentially someone will not be afraid of marrying someone who is aggressive or loud, for example, or um, against uh, projects that uh, are destructive. And I realized that was that is probably one of the things that pushed me to be aggressive because you know thinking about what community thinks about what you do and um using this as a maybe I call them stumbling blocks and not only this but also people telling you you know you can't these are government uh, you can't deal with government policies you can't go against government policies there's nothing you'll change and i've realized yes maybe in some instances and in some cases there are some things I can't change. For example, the ongoing um projects I cannot change that because it's actually in another country. But I I look at what can I do, what is the positive to that. In every negative I try to look at a positive. You know, like the negative is the developments they are affecting the lake, yes, but what can I do about it? work with communities to try and figure out how they can adapt to the changes that are occurring. You see, like for my friend, as she said, yes, I'm aggressive, but how can I use this aggressiveness in in a positive way, be the voice of these communities? Being resilient is not as easy as it sounds. You know, people will tell you, you know, people will say this, people will uh, say your project is not viable, for example, but you have to try and be resilient and it's not i can say freely it's not easy and when we fall down we just have to be strong enough to wake up and dust ourselves but if we require a break take the break and come back stronger and try and see positives out of every negative situation yeah Oh my goodness, your friend who told you that you were aggressive. And that is something many people face, including myself. And thinking about having to get over that criticism of of them using what is a strength in your work against you. I love the mindset that you've spun it and how you're saying to use your aggressive, which I would call passionate nature, to be a voice for others and to lift others up. Um, 
I, that's a really important shift for me. And I know it's going to be an important shift for a lot of people who, and especially right now, there are so many uprisings and movements happening around the world where people, I think, are having a hard time sustaining their voice, you know, sustaining what you call kind of being aggressive and moving forward. But I think sustaining passion for a movement can be really exhausting. And you've done so many things. You've worked, you work with the UN, you've done, you're the co-founder of Ecophilia, they've Lake Turkana movement. You've done so many things. How do you sustain your passion and how do you keep moving forward? Friends, I have to leave you on a cliffhanger for this conversation. Return back tomorrow for part two of my conversation with Wangechi Kiango. Tomorrow we'll hear Wangechi's answer to the question, how do you keep moving forward? The intro to this podcast was recorded by Jay at National Geographic Headquarters in June of 2019. I created all the music using Apple Loops, and I recorded and edited this conversation. The logo for Thriving on the Possibility was created by Jen Levro. Remember, friends, resilience is a process, and not one we always have the energy to be a part of. But if anyone can do it, it's you.